bad boys of Easter. How many of you were here last week when we kicked off this series? Anyone? Yeah, quite a few of you. Okay. How many of you um, learned something new last week as we introduced the character of Caiaphas? Anyone feel like they left kind of more? Yeah, yeah. Anyone have a chance to show off that new knowledge this week? Anyone at work, you know, and someone was talking about Dancing with the Stars, and they were like, oh, did you see that show last night? And Charo, she was so bad. And you're like, you think she's bad? Let me tell you about Caiaphas. He was bad. He was one of the bad boys of Easter. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. I know all about him. He's part of a dynasty. (laughs) Yeah. I don't even know what a dynasty is, but he was part of one, and it sounds pretty bad. But, um, yeah, so maybe this week you've kind of feel like you've learned a little bit more about Caiaphas and who he was. So this morning, we're going to step into another person's life. We're going to take a look at another character who um, actually played quite a large role throughout um, all of the the ministry of Jesus, but really um, only kind of fell into that role of a bad boy of Easter in the final weeks leading up to Jesus's death. And some of you have already started to kind of guess who I might be talking about. But before I do reveal who that is, I, I have to give you a little confession here this morning just to kind of set up what I want to speak about. And that confession is that um, during my teenage years, okay, I was a little bit of a rebel, okay? I actually was not um, serving God at all. I wasn't, I would definitely not call myself a follower of Jesus at that time. I was, I was living very far from him in, in things that I got, I got up to. And at the age of about 18 or 19, uh, through the um, story basically of a friend of mine, a good friend of mine who had become a Christian, who'd made a decision to, to give his life to Jesus, through his and, I, his and mine interaction, I decided that I wanted to recommit my life to Jesus. Now, I say recommit because for me, my teenage years were a a period of time where I turned my back on God and ran from him. I turned my back because I can remember as a child, I was about eight or nine years old, my parents, who actually at the time, they weren't followers of Jesus themselves, but they thought it'd be good for me to learn some good morals and some good values. So they sent me to this, this Christian club that used to run every Sunday afternoon. It's called Crusaders. And I can remember going along to this club, and it was fun, and they would tell Bible stories, and we would play games, and we just really enjoyed it. And this particular club, they had summer camps that they organized. And I can remember, I was probably 10 or 11 or 12 years old, going to one of these summer camps. And it was brilliant. It was just a great summer camp. We played sports and games all week long, and it was very much like some of the summer camps that you may have gone to growing up, or maybe your kids go to now. But this particular summer camp, every evening there'll be a meeting, and it was lots of fun and games, but there was a speaker, and the speaker was really kind of cool and funny, and he would share stories, and he would tell you about the Bible, but it was in a really cool way, and and everything kind of led up to that Friday night. And then Friday night, after having talked all week about Jesus and how much he loves us and how much he wants a relationship with us, that Friday night, he basically said to all of us kids in the camp, now how many of you would like to be a Christian? How many of you would like to to give your heart to Jesus? How many of you would like to follow Jesus? And I can remember on that camp, not having grown up in a family that um, were churchgoers, I can remember in that moment thinking, me, I want to do that. I, I want Jesus. I want him in my life. Now, I'd love to tell you this morning, it's because I understood how much God loved me. Or if I, uh, I'd love to tell you it was the power of the fact that I understood that Jesus had died for me. What a great sacrifice he'd made. But the reality is, as I think back to that time in my life, I think I just wanted to know that I was going to heaven. At about 11 or 12 years old, I think I just wanted to know, yeah, I want to go to heaven when I die. And I don't remember if that speaker spoke about hell. I'm not sure. But um, maybe for some of us this morning, whether it's a, a fear of hell or just a desire to go to heaven, if we trace back that decision to the time that we decided to become followers of Jesus, 
where we made that decision to say, yeah, I want to be a follower of Jesus, maybe part of what drove us to make that decision was because deep down, we just wanted to go to heaven. We wanted something for us. The reason we made that decision was essentially what was in it for us. What was in it for me? That was kind of the question that I was asking at this camp. So we came in maybe not necessarily as followers, but more as consumers. So our journey as followers of Jesus was kind of more consumer-driven than than follower-driven. And now we find ourselves here this morning as adults, and uh, maybe we're older, teenagers, young adults, and we have this relationship with Jesus, and, and still it has some great advantages for us. Because really, deep down, we want to be better parents, and we feel that this will help us. Maybe in our parenting, we want to be better employees at work, maybe better students, maybe a better spouse, just an all-round better person. So really, I want to be a follower of Jesus because there's a lot in this for me, and that's okay. I'm not saying that's wrong, and I'm not saying that's bad. Those aren't bad reasons to be a follower of Jesus. In fact, you're going to discover this morning that when Jesus himself was actually here on earth, that he had a group of 12 individuals that followed him. They were known as his disciples or the apostles. And and all of them, when they chose to follow Jesus, a very big reason that they made that decision was because of what was in it for them. What was in it for them? They thought, man, I want to be a part of what this guy is doing, where this guy is going. They chose to give up successful careers as fishermen and, and other vocations to follow this man because they felt like Where he was going was good, and they wanted to be attached to that. They wanted to be a part of this guy's journey. Some of them already kind of understood that this might be the Messiah. This might be the man that they've been speaking about for hundreds of years, that my parents and my grandparents and my grandparents' grandparents have been talking about, and this may be him, and I want to be with him. If this is the Messiah, if this is the king, I want to be right there in the inner circle. But we learn that after three years of them hanging out with Jesus, expecting something great to happen, and from them to benefit from it, from them to be right there when the greatness happens, he ends up getting arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane. And you know what all those followers did in that moment? That's right. They all took out their phones, and they hit unfollow right there. They're like, uh-oh. Didn't see it going this way. So, And all of them, all of them unfollowed Jesus in that moment. We can read that when he was arrested, they all dispersed. Now, fortunately, we can continue to read in the rest of the story of uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that kind of gives us the account of Jesus' life and then into another book called Acts that's following Jesus' life and the new church, the way it began, that they came back. Fortunately, they came back. Now, I'll tell you why they came back. It wasn't because Jesus died on a cross. In fact, in their day and age, lots of people died on crosses. Crucifixion was quite a common way to execute people. It wasn't because Jesus died on a cross, even though he died for them. That wasn't that drove them to come back. Do you know what drove them to come back? It was that he rose again. Three days later, after being crucified, Jesus rose again. And we read that not only did he rise again and that the tomb was empty, but that he appeared many times to the disciples and hundreds of others. There was a lot of people who died on a cross, but there was no one who had ever risen again. And this resurrected Jesus stirred up within them this desire to say, we are going to share that name. We are going to do whatever it takes. And these disciples went back to being. They went from being unfollowers to followers again. 
And as followers, they started to proclaim the name of the risen Jesus. And the church was built. And every one of these disciples um, went on to to share the name of Jesus. And and for many of them, at a cost. Many of them, like Jesus, were, were killed because of their faith in him and because of their desire to proclaim his word. But we learn that all of them came back. All that is, except for one. One of the disciples never returned, and his name was Judas. And this morning, Judas is our bad boy of Easter. Judas Iscariot, you probably remember the name. You see, like you and me and like the other disciples, Judas's motivation for following Jesus in the first place was somewhat self-serving. It was what was in it for him. You see, the whole idea was that God was going to deliver Israel. This was the the prophecy, the plan that they'd heard all their lives. He was going to reestablish Israel as this national presence, this national entity. There was going to be a world power, and he would do that by putting someone on the throne of Israel, and that Rome would be thrown out, and once again, Palestine and Judea and the whole part of the world would be under the leadership of a Jewish king, a Messiah, a deliverer, a savior. This is what all of these people were holding out for. And as, Jesus wa- sorry, as Judas watched Jesus, Jesus had a lot of the characteristics of this Messiah. He did many of the things that were associated with those Old Testament prophecies. Jesus had a lot of those characteristics that were predicted. And Judas thought, I think this may be him. Judas followed this man, believing he was the Messiah. But he had a bit of a problem because there were some things that didn't quite fit with what he thought the Messiah should be. You see, Jesus... Ju- Jesus Jesus didn't hate the Romans. Judas couldn't understand that. To be the Messiah, to be the overthrowing king, you'd have to hate the Romans. And Jesus, they just couldn't get him to to admit that he hated the Romans. And on top of that, Jesus always seemed to be going kind of head to head with the religious leaders. He was always confronting them. And Judas must have thought, why are you doing this? Because when you finally become king and we overthrow the Romans... We're going to need to to reestablish the temple. You're going to need to be in with the priests and the the leaders because this is going to be a new kingdom. And and why do you keep standing against these these religious leaders? And yet I think Judas was willing to put up with these annoyances because he knew that when the time was right, Jesus would rise up as king and take his place on the throne and that he would need those true followers right by his side. And Judas was ready to slide right in there to the place that he wanted to be, a place of wealth and power and prominence. I think Judas followed Jesus because he saw Jesus as a means to an end for what he wanted to get out of him. You know, the other thing I think that must have really irritated Judas was Jesus' attitude to money. Jesus just was so giving He just was constantly being generous to the poor. And and Judas must have thought, Jesus, come on. Do you not understand how uprisings work? We need to build up a bit of a war chest here. We need to start stockpiling. We're we're going to need some finances because when the time is right, we're going to need to get out there and do this right. And you keep giving it away. Judas knew this because you know what Judas' role was? He was in charge of the money. So it must have frustrated him when Jesus would say, hey, give me some money. And there it was, just given away. You know, interestingly enough, it was an extraordinary act of generosity that finally just sent Judas over the edge. 
there was something that took place that we're going to look at this morning that was such an act of generosity. And the way Jesus responded to this act of generosity, Judas finally said, I've had enough. You really aren't doing this right. You're really not doing the way I think you should be doing it. So let's look at this story together. It takes place, and Matthew, who was one of the disciples, he would have been there. He's writing this story, how he remembers it having taken place, because he was there himself. He tells us in the end of the, the, the letter that he's written with the account of Jesus' life, in Matthew chapter 26, he's talking about the time that Jesus and all the disciples, they found themselves in this home in Bethany. And he says this, while Jesus was in Bethany in the home of Simon the leper. Now, I always think it's a little bit unfortunate for Simon here, okay? Because my assumption is that he didn't still have leprosy, because I don't think they'd have all gone to someone's house for dinner who still had leprosy. So I'm assuming here that Simon once had leprosy. So now he's known as Simon the leper. My tonsils were removed when I was like seven years old. And I'm glad that today they still don't call me Dave, who has severe bouts of tonsillitis. That happened a long time ago. I'm glad that people don't, but Simon, poor Simon, that's who he is, Simon the leper. That's all we know about him. But they were in Simon's home, and we find out that while he was eating, a woman came in with a beautiful alabaster jar of expensive perfume, and she poured it over his head. She had this beautiful alabaster jar full of perfume, and she poured it over his head. Now, this jar was kind of unique. I found a picture of what um, this jar may have looked like, okay? This was a, a sealed jar. So this jar would have been probably made of clay, and it was, it was filled with perfume. It was sealed so that the perfume itself wouldn't evaporate or escape. This wasn't a bottle of Dior that she just came in and tss, tss, gave him a couple of squirts. No, Jesus, I really love you. Tss, 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 four squirts. This wasn't just something she could dis. I mean, it was like you use it all or you use none. That's how this worked. So you really had to know that this was the moment that I want to use this perfume because when I break open this bottle, it's all coming out. We're using it all. And she decided that this man, Jesus, was who she wanted to bestow with this beautiful gift. So she breaks open this jar of perfume. She, break, she would have broken the neck of the container. And once the neck was broken, she would have poured everything that was in there. Now, I want you to kind of picture the response of the people in the room when this happened. And here's how you can understand the kind of response that, that they would have felt. Because John, another one of the disciples who wrote a letter of Jesus' life, he describes it in his account of the same story, and he actually adds some information. He says that this bottle of perfume was worth about one year's wages. One year's wages. Now, that's what he says. So we don't know exactly how much that was. Let's use a modern-day kind of comparison. Maybe that's $50,000. Maybe some of you are like, well, that's, that's not much. Maybe some of you are like, that's awesome, $50,000. So, but let's, let's half it. Let's just say $25,000. That's still a lot for a bottle of perfume, isn't it? I mean, let's, let's go, how low do we go before it doesn't seem extravagant? And yet she broke that bottle of perfume and she used it all up. So imagine the mood in the room when the disciples saw this incredibly lavish, this very expensive item being broken in front of their eyes. 
We got some great friends, Case and I, and they're a wonderful family, and they've got kids and parents, and um, they're often, we're often sh- chatting with them and just sharing, you know, because our kids are similar ages. We're like, hey, how do you t- deal with this? And we've often got stories to tell of, you know, some parenting wins and some parenting challenges and that kind of thing. And just recently, um, the dad was telling me this story about an in- interaction between the mom and their youngest child. And um, basically what happened was just recently, the youngest uh, daughter had got her first phone. She'd got an iPhone, and uh, she was pretty excited. She got this brand new iPhone, and uh, she was getting to use it. But what they were noticing, mom and dad, is that from, it was almost like from the moment she got the phone, things changed. She just got really distracted. She was spending way too much time on the phone. There was a little bit of an attitude creeping in. There were some problems, and, and it just seemed to be that it all began when the phone arrived. I'm sure none of you parents can relate to that this morning. That's never happened in your home, but it just seemed that this phone had brought some problems. So there came this time, one time, and the dad was telling me he was in the living room, and he could hear this conversation taking place in the kitchen. So mum's in the kitchen, she's there at the countertop, and she's talking to the daughter, and uh, there's a bit of a heated discussion growing here, and there's some back talking, and this is going on, and finally mum says, you know what, I've had enough of your attitude. Ever since you got this phone, and she grabs her phone, ever since you got this phone, it's been nothing but trouble. I am fed up, granite countertop, bang, <laughs> fed up, fed up, fed up, <laughs> and they tell me that the daughter's like, <gasps> And she's watching this phone just smashing in front of her. Dad's telling me the story. He's sitting there in the living room thinking, well, I guess that's going to cost me a new phone. (laughs) It's an expensive lesson to learn. She goes, you are not getting this phone back. She drops it in the trash. The daughter now is really kind of (laughs) very upset by this and tearful. And she goes, can I just get my $5 out of the case? I had $5 in the case. She goes, $5? I just smashed your phone. Do you think I care about the $5? No, you can't have your $5 back. So I've told that story to my kids because I can't afford to smash the phones, but I wanted them to know, listen, seriously, this is what could happen. So feel free to use that story. But when I was thinking about this and how the disciples, I was imagining how that girl, how dad, how maybe the siblings around, as they watched that phone, I mean, I mean that's just a phone. That's hundreds of dollars, but it's just a phone. They must have thought, whoa, she's smashing a phone. I think that's just a fraction of how the disciples must have felt as they looked and that she broke that jar open. Why? Why would you break such an expensive jar? In fact, Matthew says that the disciples were indignant when they saw this. What a waste, they said. It could have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. Now, have you noticed that whenever there's a problem, whenever there's some dissension or some some trouble, even if it's a group of people saying, normally there's kind of one person that's the the role, the ringleader. One person's kind of stirring the pot there. And in this case, John gives us a little bit more insight. He says in chapter 12, verses 4 through 6, but Judas Iscariot, the disciple who would soon betray him, he said that perfume was worth a year's wages. It should have been sold and the money given to the poor. And then John adds a little bit of narrative here because he's sharing this in hindsight. He says, not that he cared for the poor. He was a thief. And since he was in charge of the disciples' money, he often stole some for himself. So Judas is is stirring things up here. He's saying, come on, that was such a waste. And Jesus says this incredibly profound thing. First off, he says, kind of, what's it to you? It's her money. He says, Jesus, aware of this, replied, why criticize this woman for doing such a good thing to me? You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. 
She has poured this perfume on me to prepare my body for burial. Now, I think the disciples are kind of confused here. They're like, what's he talking about? Burial? Jesus, you keep talking about this death stuff. What's up with that? And then he says something else. And if you're not a follower of Jesus here this morning, I, this, this phrase alone should make you question this, should make you think maybe there is something to Jesus. Maybe he was who he claimed to be. Because listen to what he said. He said, I tell you the truth, wherever the good news is preached throughout the world, this woman's deed will be remembered and discussed. Wherever the good news is preached throughout the world, this woman's deed will be remembered and discussed. Basically, what Jesus is saying here He'd already talked about the fact that he was going to die. He already talked about the fact that he would rise again. But in this sentence, he's predicting. He's saying, and thousands of years from now, in countries that haven't yet been discovered, in languages that haven't yet been developed, people will be telling this story. Now, I'm a pretty cool dad. I am. So uh, every year at our house, we celebrate a little English tradition. It's Pancake Day, Shrove Tuesday. So in England, we, uh, we make pancakes on this day in February, and it kind of offsets. It's the beginning of Lent, and uh, you, you make these really thin pancakes, and then you put them in this frying pan, and uh, part of the, the wonder of Pancake Day is that you fry them, and then you flip them, and you catch them. So it's become a little bit of a tradition in the Jane household. Like The kids get excited when pancake day is coming because they're, they're very tasty pancakes. But it's fun watching dad trying to flip these pancakes and getting angry that he can't get it to go. And then finally he gets one. He's like, woohoo! <laughs> but you know what I've never done yet? I've never flipped a pancake and caught it and said, you see that? They'll be talking about this for thousands of years. <laughs> they will talk about Dave Jane and his pancake flipping skills. <laughs> For many years to come. I think my kids would think I'm nuts. They'd think I'm nuts anyway. But I think if I said something like that. And yet that's what Jesus was saying. He knew that we'd be talking about this. And, and we are. I wonder how many of you, as I'm telling this story about this lady breaking the jar of perfume, already knew the story. At some point you've heard the story. You were aware of that because somebody has told that story. This is what's happening in that moment. Jesus is saying there will come a time where they will still talk about this moment. But for Judas, it was the final straw. For Judas, he was just fed up. He tried hard enough, but it kept going against his plan. So it says in verse 14 that Judas Iscariot, one of the 12 disciples, he went to the leading priests and he asked, how much will you pay me to betray Jesus to you? And they gave him 30 pieces of silver. And from that time on, Judas began looking for an opportunity to betray Jesus. Do you know why they paid Judas? We talked about this last week. Caiaphas had already set in motion the plan to arrest Jesus, but he had a problem. And we talked about that problem last week. What was it that Jesus had that Caiaphas didn't have? Do you remember? It was the people, the crowds. Everywhere Jesus went, there were crowds of people. So Caiaphas knew that he could arrest Jesus, but he knew that if he tried to arrest him in the middle of the crowds, there would be chaos. So he needed a moment when Jesus was going to be off by himself. And Judas represented an opportunity to get to Jesus' agenda, his timetable, and find a place where they could arrest him in secret away from the crowds. So not long after this, we read that they head into Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover, and they gather in a home to have a meal together. Maybe someone mentioned the idea of going off to Gethsemane after dinner to pray, and Judas heard that and thought, that's it. 
that's my opportunity. I could, I could tell Caiaphas, now's a good time to come and get him because we'll be alone in this garden. But how? How can I get away? How am I going to be able to sneak out to tell him? So Judas is probably sitting at the dinner table trying to come up with a plan, an excuse to try and get out of there. And suddenly Jesus, while they're eating, he says this. He said, I tell you the truth, one of you will betray me. Now, I have to think in that moment, Judas is like, oh, busted. What was I thinking? This is the guy who just seems to be able to answer questions that people aren't even asking. This is the guy who, that time there was a crowd of people said, someone touched the hem of my cloak. And he knew that someone had touched the hem of his cloak. This is the guy that raised Lazarus from the dead. Why did I think that I'd be able to secretly go behind his back and betray him without him knowing? And I think he probably started to panic at that point. He probably started to think, now it's going to happen. Jesus is going to expose me. He's going to tell the other disciples about my plan to betray him. Peter over there, he's been carrying that knife around for ages now, that sword. I know he's dying to use it. This is it. It's, It's all over. But something very unusual happens. Listen to what happens. John chapter 13 says that Jesus looked at Judas and said, hurry and do what you're going to do. And none of the others at the table knew what Jesus meant. Jesus looked in Judas' eyes and said, do what you're going to do. And in that moment, Judas left and he went and he gave up Jesus to the priests. Now for 2,000 years, people much smarter than me have been trying to figure out why would Judas do this? What would motivate him to want to give up Jesus? Why after three years of following Jesus would he give up Jesus? The Bible doesn't really say, but the most educated guess we can come up with is that maybe Judas didn't realize what he was actually doing. Maybe he was just trying to force Jesus' hand. Maybe he was fed up with the speed at which Jesus was going. He still thought that Jesus was going to overthrow the Romans and become the king, but it was just moving too slowly. And if I could you know, get these uh, threats of arrest coming his way, maybe that'll force his hand. It'll speed things up. Maybe that's what Judas thought. But then we discovered that the truth for Judas set in. In Matthew 27, it says that when Judas, who had betrayed him, realized that Jesus had been condemned to die, he was filled with remorse. He realized this was a bad move. He tried to to correct it. He took his 30 pieces of silver back to the leading priests, and he said to them, I've sinned. I've betrayed an innocent man. And they said, what do we care? They retorted. That's your problem. We've solved our problem. It says, then Judas threw the silver coins down in the temple, and he went out, and he hanged himself. What a sad end to his life. And I think we look at Judas as one of the bad boys of Easter, and we say, ah, he got what he deserved. The way he behaved, the way he betrayed Jesus, he had it coming to him. But you know what? I think at the core of Judas was this problem that you and I battle with on a daily basis. You see, Jesus, oh, sorry, Judas, he didn't really want to discover who Jesus was and what his plan was. He had an idea of who he wanted Jesus to be. He wanted to follow Jesus, but he wants to follow him on his terms and for what he could get out of it. And that's where I think the little bit of Judas is in all of us. That little bit of Judas that says, we want to be Jesus' followers, but, but we really would like to kind of keep him on our terms. Kind of like a a hip pocket Jesus who we can keep out or tuck away depending on the situation. 
I'm going on this business trip next week, and it's going to be kind of awkward if I take Jesus with me, some of the people I'm going to be with, some of the things we're going to get up to. So I think during that trip, I might just kind of tuck him away a little bit. But when it comes to the end of the trip and we need to close the deal, he's coming right back out then because I'm going to be asking for his help at that point. Maybe you're a student at school and, um, you know, the stuff your friends are talking about and the stuff you're into at school, it's not really ideal for Jesus to hear that. So you, you tuck him away a little bit, but those finals are coming up next week. And you're going to be pulling him right back out because next week there will be prayer in school again. Because Jesus, I need your help. Jesus, I really need your help with this relationship I have with my spouse and my kids. But when it comes to that whole teaching of forgiving and and forgiving that person who wronged me, well, I'm going to just tuck you back away because I don't like that part of, of Jesus. So while many of us have begun this journey of following Jesus because what was in it for us, there'll come this point where our agenda... And his agenda will clash. It may happen on a Sunday morning, a series we're teaching here. Maybe one day you're, you're reading a, a verse. Maybe it's just hearing a song on the radio and the words of the song. But whatever it is, you suddenly realize that, that Jesus' agenda and your agenda, they've kind of hit an, an impasse. And you've got to make a decision. Do I choose in that moment to surrender and do what I feel Jesus is leading me to do? Or do I say, no, I, I didn't sign up for that. Like Judas, I had this preconceived idea of what things should be like, and, and I'm going to go this way instead. In that moment, we have to make a decision. Will I treat him like hip pocket Jesus, or will I fully surrender my life to him? Because the truth is, the safest, most secure, most purpose-filled place to be in this world is in the center of God's plan for your life. It's being surrendered to Jesus. But it's a difficult place to be. And I think at the end of the day, this is the lesson that we can learn from the life of Judas, one of the bad boys of Easter. Let's pray. Jesus, just like last week with Caiaphas, it's so easy to have an understanding and a knowledge of who Judas was and what he did and to look back with disdain and disgust that he would betray such a wonderful, innocent man. And and we'd like to think that, Jesus, if that were us, we would never find ourselves doing that. But the truth is, the truth is, Lord, there's a little bit of Judas in every one of us, I think. We've made this decision to follow you, and we love following you, Jesus. And there are some wonderful benefits to following you, but... Occasionally, we'll come across a verse in the Bible, we'll hear something spoken about at church, and we'll realize that that kind of goes against what we, what we find easy, that there's some surrender, that there's a, a, a decision we're going to have to make. Judas had these ideas of who he thought you were, and then when he discovered that you were different, that you had different expectations, for Judas, he wasn't willing to go that way. And he gave you up. Lord, I pray that we wouldn't, when we reach that impasse, give you up. Whatever it is in our lives, Lord, whatever our 30 pieces of silver are, help us not to make that choice. Help us, Lord, to say it's it's difficult, but I want to surrender that area of my life because I want to learn from this particular bad boy of Easter. Be with us the rest of today and this week, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.